Here we go. Episode 127 of The Brian Oak Show being recorded in the Smart Start MN studio here in scenic, historic, and today, beautiful and sunny, beautiful blue skies, plenty of sunshine. Yeah, it's cold outside, but shit, it's January, man. You know, I mean, it's not supposed to be hot and sunny outside right now. Yeah, what did you expect? <laughs> what did you expect, Sean? I don't know, man. I'm over it. <laughs> over what? Winter. Already? It's been a short, easy winter, but I'm already over but it. But you're already done with it? I'm done. Okay. <laughs> what am I going to do? Go out and make a snow fort? I'm almost 50. Dude, snow forts are better when you're 50. Are they? What about my bad back? <laughs> I'm not saying like, you know, heavy lifting. It doesn't have to be fortified by, you know, pine beams. You just go out and you push a little snow together and you build a wall and you sit behind it and you hunker down. And you build a little fire and you look out suspiciously, almost with a paranoid tinge at the people around <laughs> you. I wonder what the hell these icy jerks are up to. Did you ever take your daughter sledding? I'm sure you did. Oh, my God. A- are you kidding? One of the worst things ever. When you're a kid... It's Sledding fantastic. is joyous. <laughs> when you're an old person with small children, sledding is one of the worst things you can do. Oh. You know that they'll have fun, and you love them, and you'll sacrifice for them. But man, I mean, riding down with them is kind of fun, and you know they're having the time of their life. But then you suddenly went from, let's fucking do this, <laughs> to, okay, whoa, 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 there's a tree over there. Whoa, 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 foot out, foot out. Okay, slow Some down, slow down. ramp that when you hit it and then hit the ground <laughs> it feels like you've been hit by mike singletary i mean literally it just hurts like is that an up-to-date nfl player? i don't know I don't who that is the no is that bart star is that what you meant <laughs> uh so. no but then when you hit one of those in those oh. bumps that kids love yeah. because they haven't damaged their spine yet and you come down right on your cossacks yes yeah and yeah. Uh, you're like <gasps> it's fine that it's was fine. the name of your acoustic side project right it still Cossacks. yeah we just put out our second ep thanks for listening what's the plural for cossacks cossacks I think so. Who would ever talk about more than one of them? Well, That's a good point. No one would ever talk Not about more than one company. of them. No, it, well, unless you're like running a mortuary or something. There's, oh. there's no reason to bring up multiple cosi. Anyway, off to a weird start. My name is Brian Oak. That is Sean Bernard. We are here for episode 127 of The Brian Oak Show. It is a beautiful winter day here in South Minneapolis, and we're happy to be here once again in the Smart Start MN studio. Looking forward to today's conversation because it's going to be what I feel is an important part of 2021. Really, it's always been an important part of what we do. But, you know, learning and growing, it is a painful, painful process. And growing up, I'm 52 years old and still very much in the teeth of growing up, learning, expanding, growing, and being willing to accept that, hmm, maybe something that I've always taken as an absolute home truth isn't fucking true, or it's a little off, or one of the reasons I look forward to talking to today's guest is I, I mean, we know each other much better on social media than we do in the real world, much, much better, but every single time I see him post something, I either laugh, I learn, I grow or I sit and reevaluate and that, you know, there's, there's not enough of that on social media. So I'm looking forward to talking to John Hunt in just a little bit. Um, I just want to let you know, Sean, that if at some point I disappear, it's because the IRS is after me. Oh no. Out of nowhere. They decided that from four years ago, 2017, I owe them thousands of dollars. You're so shifty. 
That's like what you try to do I, to well, get around you the know, tax I'm laws. Always, oh, I'm, a, I'm not smart enough to be shifty, all right? I'm not smart enough to outfox the IRS, nor am I <laughs> stupid enough to think I could try. That's not my game. And for whatever reason, they are on me, bro. They are on oh, me. Oh, that is negative. Yeah, it is negative. You need to build that snow fort now. <laughs> Where's Brian? Honestly, we haven't seen him. We really don't know where he is. Is there cigarette smoke coming from that children's fort in the front? No, no, that's a... We're not sure what that is. We gave them flint and steel, and we're trying to teach them how to survive in the wilderness. By the way, I do know how to make a snow fort to survive in the wilderness due to my Boy Scout skills. That's good. Yeah, because I'm probably going to need it, right? Yeah, well... Soon. Son, son of a bitch. We'll get to the more interesting part of the show, I promise, in mere moments. What I've been doing in this time of excess, you know, I I thought 2020, I, I, I don't know if I was, well, of course, I was naive about it, but I thought 2021, I'm like, all right, here we go. New year, new regime, new everything, new, new year, new me, right, Sean? <laughs> no comment. Anyway, uh, it's been more uphill in the first three weeks of 2021 than any part of 2020 for me personally, but I'm breathing, taking it easy, dodging the IRS, everything's going to be fine. But as always, one of my oases, that's multiple for oasis, by the way. Like toxics. (laughs) One of my oases, one of my safe places, one of my havens, one of my palliatives has been music, as it always has been my entire life. And for whatever reason, I have decided to sink into what to some people I think probably seems very surfacey, very poppy, very disposable glam music. And one of the most important figures in the history of glam rock is Susie Quattro. Now, I intend no disrespect to Joan Jett. I adore Joan Jett. And Joan Jett has shown American longevity much more than I ever would have guessed or expected. But I will say this. Without Susie Quattro, there is no Joan Jett. Now, Susie Quattro was a superstar in the UK. Barely cracked through over here. No songs really charted over here, but she did get enough popularity to become Leather Tuscadero on oh, Happy yeah. Days back when we were young. But you're always like, who's the chick with the mullet? You know, exactly. Ba-boo. Finger guns, man. <laughs> First time I ever saw finger guns. And you're like, who's the chick with the mullet in the cool jumpsuit? And I don't know if that was part of the promotional machine that thought it was going to happen over here in the U.S., but it never really did. But she was a superstar in the U.K. for a good seven, eight years. And her catalog is one of my very, very favorite. So I've been losing myself recently in the music of Susie Quattro, at least until the IRS comes and takes me away. Here's one of my very, very favorites, Daytona Demon, Susie Quattro on The Brian Oak Show.
I don't know if there's genuine healing properties in her kick-ass jumpsuits or proto-mullet or just the fact that a woman in the early 70s could assume the same sexual power and position of force and badassery exactly that that a man i mean you know again there are people like oh that's cool yeah but i mean like (laughs) that had been strictly the purview of guys now of course there were some women who had made their way to the front but she decided to take the the soul the whole rock thing and be like no i can i can be sexy and powerful and cool and rock your ass from the middle of the stage right now i've always thought Susie quattro is a fucking hero I'm just I'm a huge fan and there's something about her music that lets me let go of the world around me which I have found myself in deep need of lately so a little Susie Quattro on the Brian Oak show which is made possible by Smart Start MN. Smart Start MN is Minnesota's original ignition interlock company what do they do well if you or someone you care about or someone near to you should lose your license due to a DUI, they can get you back on the road sooner and for less money than you might otherwise expect, which if you've been through the process, you'll know is a very, very important step. It absolutely is. Go to smartstartmn.com slash the Brian Oak show. You'll get 20% off the installation of the ignition interlock system. They're good people. They've stuck with us through the entire time. They they signed on to sponsor before we did a single episode of this show. That's true. And uh, as I was a total whiny baby to my wife last night about live concerts, I know <laughs> that they're looking forward to live shows as much as I am. The last live show that I couldn't go to was one of the guys from Smart Start. Ed invited me. He's like, we going to the show? I'm like, sure. And then everything started to crumble around oh. us. I'm like... I'm probably not going to go just because it seems weird right now. This would have been last February, maybe yeah. early March. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to hold off. Uh, I just, it doesn't feel right. And then, of course, here we are almost a year later and all of us starving, scrabbling at the walls for any piece of live music we can get, which I know is the same way that today's guest feels as well. I know he's a fan of music in general, live music as well. And um, I want to introduce you to John Hunt. Now, John Hunt is a former local musician himself. He's played quite a bit. Bands like Shatterproof, Lunar 9, Blue Sky Blackout, who I've actually seen. He's also a former local journalist for the Minnesota Daily and City Pages L'Etoile, and currently has designed album covers for Sundays like the re issue mm-hmm. yeah really yep yep wow because i own a lot of sunday stuff and i mean even going back to the 90s i've owned a lot of stuff for that so john first of all hello how are you good i'm very good how's Thank your you pandemic going my pandemic is fantastic i'm enjoy- i am so enjoying the plague that is killing <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people it's fantastic now, i know you're not enjoying the no, part no, about no. death and destruction totally but i'm totally doing fine i'm an introvert and so for me uh the thought of an excuse to stay home and never see people is is fantastic i'm i'm digging it i thought the same thing and there are times where i genuinely genuinely enjoy it but then there are other times where i mean so even though you're a former musician that, i mean that means you love music performing right. but i also know that you love going out to shows as well that part's not chewing at you a little bit it is chewing at me a little bit but i i have always been kind of more of an album guy so right. i mean i give me a give me a good stereo and uh and some vinyl and and I'm willing to forego for a year. All know, right. At all least right. a year. 
Well, I feel the same way. So you and I apparently met a long time ago, which, again, it's not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on me. If it was the 90s, then I I don't even feel bad because yeah. that was so long ago and Grandpa's getting old. But also, that was a pretty smoky, hazy time for me, if I'm honest. I was not sober that entire decade. So, yeah, okay. you know, All right, I'm right very there good. with you. Well, anyway, we've been friends on social media for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I really, as I said before, I really do enjoy reading your posts because I feel like... There's a level of thoughtfulness. Now, I don't need everybody to be Ram Dass, right? I don't need everybody. I don't need everybody to like be like Gandhi. But it is nice to, I mean, because you still have a sense of humor. You're still willing to have fun with things. But there is also a sort of a bend but don't break aspect to the things that you post about, you know, what matters, what's important. Mm-hmm. If we are really believing in the future, if we are all going to live on this planet together, if there's going to be a future for the entire human race, then there are certain things that are important and i feel threads of that in a lot of things that i see you write on social media would you say that's a fair assessment that is a fair assessment yeah i mean i definitely uh how can i put it i believe that the human race has the capability to sort of evolve over its um racist uh white supremacist uh, past or whatever but it takes it takes a lot of thinking it takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of sort of pain to do it it's not something that's super easy to do. And uh, and I think there was a long period of time where people were kind of like, well, we've taken care of racism. It's all done now. So Oof. we can just, yeah, thank God we solved Man. that. Thank goodness that's <laughs> over because that was bad. There was, was some really was bad terrible. stuff there. Negative yeah. time. And, and when I say people, I definitely just mean white people because there's, you know, anybody who's a person of color the whole time. We're like, yeah, there's still racism, guys. Please wake up and listen to this. So, well, and yeah. so, and for me, that's been part of the learning process. As a young, white, liberal man, I always thought, like, well, I grew my hair long. I worked for a progressive organization. I worked in the nonprofit community for six. I believe we should all be equal. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. It's been a slow cracking of the shell for me to understand that not only was there inherent privilege, but that even when I thought I was doing my best, I wasn't really doing my best. And it hasn't always been a painless process. I've I've stepped in it a few times mm-hmm. and I've I've bumped my head a few times. So when you describe yourself as a person of color, will you put a finer point on that for me? Yep, I am a Native American. Um my family is part of the Turtle Mountain uh tribe of the Ojibwe, uh which is based in North Dakota. Uh I was adopted at a younger age, so I was raised by a white family, but I've since reconnected with my uh my native family and uh we're also we're part Métis which means that we sort of originate from Canada, uh, which is a it's sort of a Canadian indigenous uh, community. All right. So, very, very, I just, I'm, I'm curious because mm-hmm. a lot of your stuff comes from that perspective, and I've gotten past the point where I'm offended being told that there are important signposts, that there are important factors that need to be brought into each conversation, and maybe, I mean, so for you, coming from a Native standpoint, mm-hmm. right, uh, you know, that stuff is going to probably ring the loudest bell for you, but it also, you know, you have an easier path, or at least maybe perhaps a better understanding of where it happens in a lot of different points, and the reason that I reached out to you and asked you to come on the show today was one specific Facebook post that you wrote on January 17th. Do you mind if I read it real quick? Please, yeah. Because we talked about this on the show and the death of Phil Spector is an extremely conflicting event. As I wrote on that day, uh, I wrote, there is no way to overestimate his impact on popular music. That being said, he took credit for a lot he didn't do. 
he was a confirmed sociopath and a convicted murderer. So all I could come up with was so long fuckface. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, because I'm not someone who immediately adheres to cancel culture, but I'm also not someone who can separate the art from the artist in a lot of situations. It's hard to do. It's yeah. almost impossible, but yeah. everyone has to make their own choice in that, right? That's right. And so on the same day, you wrote, and I quote, controversial specter opinions. I think Phil did a lot less than he took credit for. As opposed to Brian Wilson, a composer and a ranger and a player and a singer, Phil relied on an army of talent. The Brill Riders, the Wrecking Crew, singers, Larry Levine's engineering, without whom he was basically like a guy who liked reverb. Those pop records were far more a collaboration than something like Pet Sounds ever was. And I think, honestly, less of an achievement. Even something like Be My Baby. Did Phil write that opening drum riff? Or was it Hal Blaine and Phil just cranked the verb on it? He's got a writing credit, but did he do anything or was it all Barry Greenwich? If we find out later that he basically just stood there and took credit for everything, I won't be shocked. And that's just the first part of the email. But, I mean, again, the loss of someone like Spectre, despite what he did to his legacy, despite all those things, it has a significant impact. He mm-hmm. he is a known name. But I tend to agree with you. Like, I mean, maybe without him, a lot of these bands and artists didn't have a, a vector to market. So maybe to some of these singers, some of these players, the wrecking crew, things like that, he was an important conduit. But did he take credit for more than he had, that he deserved to? I couldn't agree Dear with that God, more. Yes. I, I couldn't <laughs> sure agree with did. it more. Yeah. I mean, maybe it seems overly obvious, but you know, these, these are important aspects to, to take on. Um, and then your, your post goes on to say the real talent behind Phil's songs were the writers, especially Jeff Barry. And I'd argue, and I'm pretty sure the rock cognoscenti, Amen, brother. Well, well done. <laughs> Wood will uh, disagree vehemently that Barry songs were better served by the Archies and Andy Kim. I'll take Kim's version of Baby I Love You over the Spectre version. Now, I enjoy controversial or contrarian opinions. That is one. <laughs> but 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 not ones for the sake of being contrarian. No, I've, I've right. known too many contrarians in my life. It's annoying. Super duper annoying. I hate that too. That being yeah. said, if I have a contrarian opinion, like I don't think the clash were that important, mm. I I'm going to stand by it. You now, can back it up. I'm well, sure, and, and I can, and I, I don't. I, it doesn't mean that I now. Do I deny their spot in the in the rock pantheon? No, and and important is a very strange word to use right there. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I have some very strongly held contrarian opinions that I don't just do to roll a grenade into the room and fuck with people, <laughs> right? I mean, although that's fun to do on occasion, you know, I mean, I, and I think your opinion right there, although although it's strong, I mean, you're advocating for something poppier and and less well considered than the the general opinion, and that and that actually is kind of gets at the heart of it to be honest i mean we 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 definitely gentrify rock music to an extent mm-hmm. and, and that's part of phil Spector's appeal is that he's this sort of towering uh orchestral it it, it appeals to our sort of love of classical music and our, our thought that rock as itself could not possibly be important enough on its own it needs to take on these aspects of of classical or of these other highfalutin types of music and if you get something like uh, the Archies or or even Andy Kim, who was basically just a you know sort of two hit wonder, he was kind of an awesome dude, but he was a two right. hit wonder. You get kind of um, uh, it's very bubblegum. It's very much just like to get the kids to buy records and and shake their hips or whatever. But there's something super pure about that type of music 
Well, I mean, that's why I played Susie yeah. Quattro. Yeah, right? it's Susie Quattro thing. is not complex. No. Susie Quattro is sex and drugs. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. even drugs, sex and rock and roll, but like a cool person who knows what she's doing and can deliver this concise, ass-shaking message. I, I don't see any shame in that game at all. No, no. And that's the, the, the Archie's appeal, too. I mean, it's just a hit right to the gut. Yeah. Of, like the pure stuff. And that's, to me, I think more exciting than, than any number of Phil Spector caverns. But I realize that is a completely contrarian opinion. I mean, that, that stuff is so, like, revered, and that's part of the heart of what I'm sure we're going to be talking about. We are. That stuff is so revered by so many people that if you poke at it, even just a little bit with a pin, people get just fucking pissed. Well, the know? balloons start to pop, right? Yeah, I mean, they really and so, do. And, and so here's, here's the bit. I want to hear a song first, um, mm. because I, I don't like to go too long without hearing a song. But a big gist of this post that you made was that not only did Phil Spector take more credit for his sort of level of accomplishment than what he actually did, but it also speaks to the gentrification and, frankly, the Caucasianification <laughs> of American popular music, whether yeah. we're talking about how race records couldn't break through until Pat Boone did a just disgusting treacly oh. cover of a song, or in this case, Phil Spector taking credit for making black girl groups, African American girl groups, as popular as they were. Right. Granted, he did bring them to a wider audience, he but did. you know, and Buddy Holly. I mean, and no shame. I got nothing against Buddy Holly. I freaking love Buddy Holly. Sure. Elvis Presley. I mean, you pick him, right? So we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But first, I want to get to a song. I hate to talk too long and get, because you and I like to dig deep. Sean does too mm-hmm. on the esoteric stuff. Some people get bored. They need to hear a song. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go ahead and do it. So here, we're going to hear a little music from Funkadelic. Tell me about it. Why do you want this one? I thought of picking some songs that, that were not necessarily revered by especially the earliest music critics as, as much as they should have been. There was a certain, especially with your Dave Marshes and your Chris Gows, like those early kind of Rolling Stone dudes, there was certainly a thought that, that black music either had to be this sort of sexy, you know, kind of James Brown primal, closer to the elements kind of a thing. Well, basically, from a white perspective, had to feel a little more black. It had to feel super black, right. or but you know, not dangerously black. Safely well, no, black. no, 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 Safely no. Black. We, we want to play it on the radio. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Or, or it had to sound like white music. So it had to be you know, tons of strings, lots of treacly la di da. And and so for some reason, a group like Funkadelic, I feel like just sort of slipped between the cracks at least early on. They were not sort of admitted into the canon, even though they were playing this really sort of fascinating. I mean, it's obviously funk, but more than that, it's this it's almost like a, you know, sort of a Beatlesque thing where they're doing all kinds of different genres and weaving it in and production tricks. And I think all of their stuff is is criminally underrated. Even even now you look at that top 20, top 50 in these Rolling Stones list, you see a Funkadelic record? You do not. Uh, no, you don't. And I mean, like, you know, we all know Flashlight and Atomic Dog, but yeah. the depth of this catalog, I was lucky enough because I don't go deep on a lot of funk and mm. I don't go nearly deep enough on R&B, but I did happen to fall down a Funkadelic hole a few years ago and a Parliament hole a few years ago, so I really did explore the space and I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. One of the most criminally underrated American bands ever, and I don't feel like that's hyperbole. Yeah, not at all.
In your loving days of dawn Takes you sign with love and kisses Later come back sign Insufficient bond Time about so about that part in the Parliament Funkadelic story that is fascinating to me is, you know, up until I did a little digging and found out more about their go their backstory, you know, whether that record you want to talk about is called Osmium or Rhenium, sort of their mm. transitional th- phase. I thought the Temptations were really the only American band that went from being a truly proper doo-wop group to sort of suddenly being weird and funky and a proper protest group and exploring the space, Parliament did it even further and weirder, and they took more chances. Yes, of course, the costumes came out later, and it became a Space Jam thing. But that transition to survive and stay doing what you did, very, very few American bands got away with that. No, that's true. Yeah, that's true, especially black groups. Although, you know, there was a period where a lot of the Motown groups started kind of digging into that as well. And besides just the Temptations, you've got psychedelic albums by the Four Tops. And right. The Supremes and... and um, to and to varying levels of success. To, yes, to varying levels of success. Yeah. Right, right. Hey, before we move on with John Hunt, uh, Sean Bernard, you are plying your trade as well, not just as the master controller, the mastermind of the Brian Oak Show, the the Svengali pulling the strings from the background, <laughs> but you also are a real... I just did that to prove a point. Holy shit. I'm hanging by a thread here. <laughs> he muted me to show me that he could. As I said, my Svengali. Yeah, no, that's... I'm not safe here. Um, <laughs> Sound like Sean, the IRS or something. It, oh, <laughs> you realize that's what the rest of my afternoon is, I know. right? I know. Son of a. Anyway, um, I was trying to help you. I was trying to support my friend Sean Bernard and let people know that in addition to the fine work you do here, you're also a realtor for Edina Realty at the 50th and France location. And even though it's a beautiful, sunshiny day, it's starkly cold outside, this is not the time of year in years past where people would ever think about making a move, be it buying or selling, regardless of the market. But we're not in a year like any other year, are we? No, I'm going to take a little of this time to mention something that I heard today that right now, fewer black people, a fewer percentage of black people own homes than did in the 1960s. No. Fact. Really? Rice brought it, it up today. Me. Yeah. And the average black person oh, has one tenth of the wealth of white people in America today. Now, mm-hmm. sadly, that doesn't shock me mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean... 
that's one of the things I had to grow up to in recent years. When I heard about institutionalized racism, I'm like, well, of course there are people who are bad and they, you know, there are always going to be people in positions of power or authority that are bad. But institutionalized racism, I had a hard time getting my head around it, not because I'm not a critical thinker, not because I don't, I'm not willing to consider the possibility of things being more dire than they actually are, but it just, it seems so diabolical to me. It seemed, it seems so far reaching that I'm like, well, if that's happened, it's by accident, but over the course of, I don't know, the last decade and hearing the term over and over again and watching things, I, you know, sadly, as, as horrifying as that stat is, I'm not even a little surprised because institutionalized racism, again, fucking white kids from the northern suburbs, man, it's hard to wake <laughs> up sometimes, and I'm not all the way there yet, but I'm trying. So, I mean, John, that can't surprise you. No, absolutely not. I mean, and, and, it's, and it's more than just institutional racism. Everybody that's inside institutional racism carries all that racism around in themselves, you know? Right. And all of us, you know, um, are a part of and even even people of color are a part of sort of maintaining the status quo of white supremacy. And every day there's got to be some kind of move that you make to try to knock it down. I mean, and even just little stuff, challenging your expectations about things. It doesn't all have to be grandiose, like get out and protest and, and throw a garbage can through the police window or whatever. Right. It can all it can just be little stuff. And, and uh, you know, as 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 everybody is as, as sort of white America starts tackling that and uh, and dismantling their own white supremacy, then we can start hitting it on the institutional levels. You well, know? one of the things that was beautiful about Kamala Harris being elected is and my wife was crying about this and I was in tears about it is just the fact that there are young black people who believe that it's possible that they can be there. And the same thing happens with home ownership. When you come from poverty, as I did, you don't believe that you can ever own a home. And there's a lot of people of color uh, in the Twin Cities that don't believe that it's even possible for them to ever own a home in any capacity. Um, I'm happy to meet with anybody, by the way, even if you're five years out of even realizing that dream, if that is a dream of yours, if it's even something you're considering to talk to you about what it takes to get into home ownership, the first time home buyer options that you have and those sorts of things. So if you know of somebody who's looking to buy or sell, anybody who's looking to buy or sell, 612-859-2594, that number is also text worthy. You know, John, I want to ask you about something, but I'm afraid to do it because I've come from a position of almost painful whiteness uh, in most of these situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, our good friend Jared Brewington has been on the show a few times. African American gentleman, very successful entrepreneur, hilarious, wonderful, well connected. One of my my favorite people that I've had the opportunity to meet in the last decade. Truly a wonderful individual. Um, in the wake of the George Floyd situation, which again was not an isolated in- incident, but systemic, right? Yeah. Oh, it yeah. just happened to be one that was caught on tape and sort of was a flashpoint that moved globally. And it happened a mere 10 blocks from where we are sitting right now recording this particular podcast. Mm-hmm. In the wake of that, not immediately afterwards, but shortly thereafter, in an effort to try to do better, to, to look for ways to move forward, I asked... Jared and I, I felt extremely ignorant after he gave me his answer. I, I, I felt like a child stumbling around, right? Well, not trying to. I, I genuinely want to do better, and I know in my heart the right things to do. But there's, there's got to be better steps to take. When I talk about 
dismantling white supremacy or mm-hmm. even taking the baby steps on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, because it's not big giant steps, right? We're not changing this tomorrow. It, right. Even no. in the wake of this incredible podcast we're doing right now, we're not <laughs> changing this tomorrow. But I asked him, what do white people do? I mean, what, 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 what does someone do that wants to move things in the right direction? And Jared looked at me and Jared and I are dear friends, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he said something that I will never forget as long as I live. And he's like, I'm not black Google. <laughs> which which was both hilarious but deeply insightful yeah, and yeah. You know, it's not his job to inform me how to be a better person so the things i do on the daily are i try to to the best of my ability and it's a work in progress clearly to look at every other person i look at in the eyes like me looking at you mm-hmm. as a fellow human being we're on the same path we've got the same shit at stake no there's obviously some people have an easier path that sort of thing mm-hmm. what sort of things I mean, again, and I'm not expecting you to fix it today, mm-hmm. but I mean, do you have things in your head that you recommend for people to do to not be such pieces of shit? Well, one thing that I always recommend is to to widen your social media network. Like we all read a lot of Twitter and we read a lot of Facebook and you and I are people that I would consider very online. Um, widen your network out of your out of a bubble and, and, and even out of a comfortable bubble. Like I follow... Quite a few, uh, you know, sort of black Twitter folks and people on Jwitter, which is Jewish Twitter. Oh, um, and, I'm sorry, uh, how'd you pronounce that? Jwitter? Jwitter, okay. yeah. That's, and, that's a new term for me. Yeah, and then I, I follow, you know, a lot of people on trans Twitter and uh, and there's Native American Twitter. And I try, to, I try to find people that I don't necessarily always agree with or people sometimes when I read their, you know, their posts and they, they kind of piss me off. And I'm like, yeah, and then mm. I think. Why is that pissing me off? Is that pissing me off because it's getting at the heart of something, a prejudice that I have? And so oftentimes I'll follow them and just sort of read them and watch them. And just you learn a lot just by hearing other voices and how they react to certain things where, you know, the election happened and we're all like, oh, my God, thank you, finally. But then you read black Twitter and some of them are like, eh, great, it's another White guy, Another you know? old white guy running the yeah. show. And it's and and you know, it's it's you gotta have that perspective of of just realizing that, you know, when you think something is gonna be super sweet and awesome, that it's not gonna be like that for every person. And you know, you you even if you feel like you're woke, probably not. And nobody is. I mean, no, no fucking person is. Nobody. Well, if, uh, to that point, a friend of mine from Arizona who's black uh, was not wild about Kamala Harris. Uh, yeah. He oh, my God. He mentioned yeah. how many black people she prosecuted in California. Yeah. Her record over there is not great. It's Although, a lot higher than what Amy Klobuchar did here. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a lot of people were calling, black people were calling out Amy Klobuchar for her prosecution record for black people. So... You're right. There's part of you that's like, oh, isn't that nice that the black people get to have a vice president when there's other black people going, wait a second. She had a super high prosecution rate against <laughs> black people. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. You, you know, the, the white liberals that look at it, which I consider myself to sure. be one. Yeah. You're thinking, oh, we've. We've solved this one. Let's move on. Ooh, well, thank God we got that one out of the way. Hey, Check that box. That's out. twice we've solved racism just in the this so one show. Easy. So easy. Yeah, my God, it's so simple. Uh, oh, God. It's, it's literally the exact opposite uh-huh. of whatever you two just said. But, I mean, that speaks to the institutional nature of racism, yeah, right? Like yeah. Kamala Harris is a hero. It was. It, there's not one of us who didn't get a little misty when we saw her take the oath. It's great. But she does have that record. And mm-hmm. so there is a tremendous portion of the population who doesn't see her as an ally, doesn't mm-hmm. see her as a liberating force, sees her as the man. Yeah, and, and that's gets to what I was saying before. I mean, you can be a person of color and still uphold the, the sort of strictures of white supremacy. I mean, and it, it, 
you know, some of them do it willingly, you know, like a Candace Owens or whatever, who's uh-huh. out there supporting Trump and, and my God, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine ever doing that, but you know, shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's, it's, it's like the log cabin Republicans. I have a great number of friends who identify across a wide spectrum, mm-hmm. sexually, personally, in terms of their gender, but I've also known a good number of people, especially back when I was working in the nonprofit community, who identified as log cabin Republicans, and I, I couldn't get my head around it. Now, I didn't, I didn't tell them they were wrong, but I couldn't get my head around someone who identified as homosexual, mm-hmm. who would openly support the leading proponents of the Republican Party, because at the time, we're talking late 80s, early 90s here, there was no wiggle room. There was no gentleness. There was there was a strong dividing line. And I understand having conservative beliefs, but also it wasn't my life to live, right? Yeah. And so when, when we talk about this thing, I guess when I asked you that question before, when I kind of stepped in it with Jared, you know, when he said, I'm not black Google. Hmm. A, again, that was fucking hilarious. And Jared, I love you. I'll never, <laughs> ever forget it. But I guess I'm not looking for like a guidebook. I'm not looking for like a pamphlet. Well, here are the eight steps that all you whiteies should take. Yeah. What I'm looking for is a basic philosophy. And I'm, you know, what I'm finding though is perspective. Mm-hmm. What you were saying about paying more attention to other viewpoints and voices, even if you don't like, that's the other thing, by the way, if you come across something on social media, you vehemently disagree with. Unless someone's on fire, you don't have to post anything. You yeah. can just read it and absorb <laughs> it and think about it. You don't, it doesn't have to be a pointless shitstorm in the comment sections every single time, but a greater perspective and critical thinking. And I've, I've always tried to apply those to myself, but I find myself always continually learning and having to think harder than I want to or had to think before. And I think that's an important part of the process, too. It's a huge part of the process. And it's always, like I said, it's always painful. I mean, it hurts to, like, have to consider, like, well, am I doing this shitty thing? That sucks. Like, why am I doing this shitty thing? But, you know, um, everyone is. I mean, everyone is. And so you just kind of got to remember, oh, yeah, that's right. Everyone is. It's cool. Uh, well, it is, but it's also not cool. We do have to try we to work better. To try like, to like at one point, yeah, I, you know, to me, it was simply a turn of phrase. And I'm going to, I'm going to shame myself here real quickly before we get into the next song. Cause it's mm. been too long. Uh, you as a native person, I hope that this doesn't ruin our friendship, but to me, it was a very casual offhanded comment. And I referred to a band as my spirit animal. Mm-hmm. Now I intended no disrespect to native cultures the truly genuine, deeply spiritual, profound nature of what a spirit animal represents and what it is. And I was called out and I was taken to task by no small number of people. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my initial reaction was, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a cool white liberal guy. I'm into things. It's to me, this, this was just a flowery <laughs> metaphor. It did, and, and so, but it, re- it required that I take a look at the things that I assume are casual and normal and day to day in a greater way, probably more than any other thing that I've stepped in in social media in a long time. And, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have called a band my spirit animal because an actual <laughs> spirit animal is something significantly more profound than really feeling a band. Yeah, and, and you'd be surprised how many how many white folks have reacted angrily to that particular phrase. There have been a few sort of online flaps that I've either observed or been part of about that particular phrase. And it's it, a lot of times it's white people just saying, well, fuck, why can't I say that? I've been saying it for years. Like, I don't mean anything by it. Why can't I say that? And it just takes this sort of slow chipping away. It's like, because it is offensive to a group of people. And just because you personally don't find it offensive 
doesn't mean it's not offensive. It was hard for me to learn that. Like, yeah, so when I first stepped not. into it, I did push back, and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is like a like a metaphor. Like, a, I'm trying to explain because I do understand how profound this is, just how important this band is to me. But there's a difference between really grokking a band. And the profound nature of finding your connection to the universe, which is what a spirit animal represents. So it was a slow one for me. Mm. It was a really painful one for me and one that I begrudgingly let go. But it's just not cool. And so you can't do it. The end. Nick Offerman fixed that for all of us because he invented the phrase inner beast. And, uh, you know... A lot of times people okay. were using people were using Patronus and uh, J.K. Rowling has sort of come out as a, a you know, turf, a, a trans exclusionary person. And right. So so that kind of went by the wayside. So Nick Offerman said, what about Inner Beast? And everyone's like, Inner Beast. OK, yeah, that's fine. That's not problematic. It kind of gets at the same. Right. Just, you my know, without inner being beast. offensive. Yeah. My yeah. Inner Beast. Yeah. Huh. Would you say mine's more of a Wolverine or more of like a fat squirrel? I was going with Fat Squirrel. I'm all in. All I think in most of us squirrel. would. John Hunt is our guest. He's a music head, a music fan, also a decent human being, and I'm enjoying our conversation very much. But as we must on this show, it's time for more music, and you've chosen a very interesting figure in the history of music, a, a little-known name, but an important and sort of revolutionary figure for the time. Yeah, Joe Bryath is the guy, and he was the very first uh, openly gay musician that was signed by a label now obviously there have been many gay people uh in rock and roll uh wait a minute what yes it's a shock but yes they were john are you sure they were largely closeted you Uh had figures like little richard uh and and god knows how many other bands that Uh, we don't even know to this day but some that have become i mean freddie mercury at the time that was not widely known i mean it was known but it was not widely known among the greater fandom liberace elton john Squire. Yep. <laughs> Paul Stanley. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back it okay. up. Back it up, fellas. Getting into libel territory. Uh, but, yeah, we are. But yeah, Joe Bryath was the first one to come out and say, yes, uh, I am gay and I am open about it. And um, he was not only met with sort of a, a conservative firestorm of people just going, well, that grosses me out. But. Up until this very moment, you can go online and mention him in some groups and people just a little bit older than you and I, um, who kind of came of age during punk uh, in the 70s, will say, oh, that's just it's terrible. And I'm like, why is it terrible? And they're like, well, it just is. It just is terrible. That he was gay? That No, just that his music is horrible. Supposedly. Oh, I see. And, I see. And, and I, I have always been of the opinion that his gayness colored how the canon sort of you know thought about his music right and i think that's a terrible thing because i actually really enjoy it it's not that far off from a david bowie or an elton john well and again and it makes me think of when you talk about how he is and who he was he was an american musician but david bowie whether it was window dressing whether Mm -hmm. he actually experimented whether he was sort of fluid you know there's no question that the extra press did not hurt david bowie but it also gave people who didn't know what they were who didn't know how they felt or maybe knew exactly how they felt and didn't have a safe haven somewhere else david bowie was a haven for a great number of people who felt alienated and awkward whether it was because of their sexuality their social insecurity whatever the case may be but i know very little about the music of jabriath can we hear some yeah play it all right take me i'm yours on the brian oak show
was openly gay. He was known by the stage name Jobriath and also one of the first internationally famous musicians to die of AIDS mm-hmm. back when it was known as the gay flu. Mm. Uh, you know, Sylvester out of San Francisco, another one of those artists yeah. that early champions and trying to draw attention to it. But I mean, that that didn't sound out of place for the late 60s, early 70s. In fact, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, it's actually really good. And I just I can only think that the fact that he was openly gay uh, just sort of hindered his, his place in the sort of rock canon amongst the early critics. Well, and I think it's it's one of the other things that I've had, the, the whole self-awareness thing, this constantly growing thing, John, is a pain in the ass, I'm mm. going to be honest. All yeah, right? it sucks, doesn't <laughs> but, it? <laughs> but it's crucial. It is absolutely crucial, which is why I wanted to have you on here. I think that even though I grew up with friends who were openly gay and have mm-hmm. had many friends over the course of my life who were openly gay, and it was cool, I'm like, I don't really care who you're sleeping with. Can we hang out? Are, are you cool to be around? That's sort of my only 
you know, thing about people, my only deciding factor as to whether or not I enjoy someone's company or not. I don't really care who you're sleeping with. It's never bothered me, even when I was very young. But as as liberal people like ourselves like to imagine that that has flourished and has grown and has Mm -hmm. gone everywhere. And especially back then, that was still a very, very narrow viewpoint. Very few people were cool with you being openly gay. Yeah. And and furthermore, if you did it and were flamboyant about it in a way that was not, you know, Paul Lind or whatever, where you were just going on the television. Mm -hmm. So and wink, wink, wink. And you had a scarf on, you know, (laughs) Joe Bryant is out there with makeup and just utterly flamboyant and just out there kicking ass on stage and i'm sure middle america was was freaked out by that to a ridiculous extent and they should not have been my knowledge of joe bryant is very limited so i like it after we do one of these podcasts where i have homework i have i have work to do one of the the great things about working at a record store with as much depth of catalog as the one i work at is that i know we're going to have joe bryant there and so i'll be able to go and do my homework there which is homework that i love not actual pain in the ass homework or dealing with the irs but like fun homework a few years ago on record store day I stumbled across an album that I didn't understand, and it was confusing to me. The cover of it, just a brown border, and the picture in the center is you can't see anyone's face or body, but you see them clearly sitting in a bubble bath because the bottom half of the picture is bubbles. There's a pair of uh, the bottom half, a couple of hairy shins sticking into the thing, and then a couple of hands with beautifully done nails over the top of the knees. And it was called The Dynamic Superiors was the name of the band. I'm like... I don't I couldn't tell what that was supposed to mean. So it was a three dollar record. I bought it and took it home and it was pretty good. It was a Motown record. And then I did some digging online and the dynamic superiors were from Washington, D.C. And they were the first and really only band ever signed by Motown to have an openly transvestite lead singer. Every single show, uh, t- Tony Washington would, I mean, to the nines, like RuPaul's Drag mm-hmm. Race to the nines, and I'd never, ever heard of the Dynamic Superiors. And again, the music wasn't, you know, it's not Marvin Gaye, right? Yeah, I mean, right, it, right. it's not anything that we've ever heard of before, but it was at a time where this wasn't cool. It wasn't 1975. It still wasn't cool to be openly gay or, if not gay, at least cross-dressing yeah, on stage drag. As, as the yep. lead, doing drag as the lead singer of a Motown band. But this band was signed. They put out, I think, six or seven records on Motown between the mid-70s and the late 80s. Yeah. And there even fewer, uh, you know, transgender folks back then. There were maybe one or two. And, uh, and man, I mean, that that was even more, you know, sort of underground and, and frowned upon than even drag. Because drag has always been a little bit, right. you know, okay. I mean, people are like, well, it's fun. It's flamboyant, yada, yada. But, like, you know, transgender folks have it, you know, very rough because they don't go home, take off the makeup, you know, that's just their lives, that's them. And so, yeah, I mean. It was interesting to learn from somebody that we had in here that was trans that they felt not even accepted by the gay community. Yeah, no, that is hugely a problem. I was a little surprised by that. I Uh. I felt naive about that. My best friend is gay and he does drag Mm. out in New York City and more than anything, I think I'm jealous because he looks like he has so much damn fun doing it. And it's just, it's, it's, it was interesting to me to like, really like that's, you're being shunned by gay people because you're trans and it's like, but I guess that's, that is coming along and is getting better as well. It sounds like. Unless you live in the UK and then it's it's getting worse and worse. Is it really? Oh my God. The UK has such a problem with, with people who are anti-trans right now and it's getting worse and worse. Hmm. You get people like JK Rowling coming out and saying that they're anti-trans and people listen to that. 
And it becomes a massive thing. I mean, and you have uh, liberal politicians in the UK right now who are saying, like, I don't even want to touch this issue. You know, whereas here we're lucky that we do have some very, you know, um, bold uh, politicians, even in the Democratic Party, who are just willing to say, yeah, let's assure that trans folks have the same rights and not discriminated against. But and Biden yeah. just reversed uh, Trump's order with the military yeah. that trans people. Can I'm now so go, glad he did that, too. and he did Me that too. day one, which yes. is a huge deal. Huge sign. It sends deal. a huge signal, and so I guess that's. The, I, want, I want to end with some positivity yeah. because yeah. because and again we're not we're not quite wrapped up yet, but I want to I want to sort of end on a positive note. There have been inroads made. Absolutely. Whether whether we're oh talking God, about yes. racism, trans people, homophobia, any of it, classism, all of it, there have been inroads made. But for you know, older liberal white guys like me to think like like as you said early on in the in the podcast. Well, thank God we fixed that shit. <laughs> oh, we've been working so hard. Oh, it's not easy being white, and it, there's so 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 much further to go because I really am. You know, and I suppose it's easy for me to say as a guy who grew up white and has experienced that privilege my entire life that I'm not really a man of faith, but my whole belief system, my my whole central core has been the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Unfortunately, since the playing field has never been balanced, there's more that goes into it than that. It, can, it cannot be simplified that simply, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it simply cannot. So if we're going to continue to try to do better by everyone and give everyone a place, you know, I, I think a lot of people who have enjoyed privilege or uh, a certain perspective their entire life, they feel like they're giving up too much by making it equal, mm. right? They feel, yeah. they feel like, well, wait, wait, oh, whoa, 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 we can't give up all this. Just letting other human beings be human beings a lot. To me, this is the essence of democracy, and it's, it's a it's sticking point with a lot of people. Freedom, if we're talking about genuine liberty, mm. it has only a little bit with about you being able to do what you want to do. Certainly, that is a basic tenet mm-hmm. of liberty. Mm-hmm. But it's also, and this is the hard part, and this is the part where most people fail, myself sometimes included, liberty is about having the strength of conviction to allow other people to also experience liberty. Mm-hmm. That, that's yes. why the nature of yes. democracy and the nature of this young republic is so tenuous, and it's way harder than people think. You being free to own guns, drive around in a truck, and I know I'm painting a stereotype mm. here, but, <laughs> it, but it's a pretty powerful one. It's a real one. And yeah. a pretty prevalent one. Mm-hmm. That's not what freedom is. Freedom is having the strength of character and the fucking guts to be able to allow other people to be here, not being afraid of an immigrant. Okay. They're not taking your job. They're not, not being afraid of someone with a different orientation or a different identification. They don't threaten what you are. If you have a strength of conviction, a strength of character and a a, a notion of self that is not threatened by the presence of people who do not feel the same way you do, or do not look the same way you do, or do not act the same way you do. That's the essence of Liberty. You have to have the strength to let them do their thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right that we have made, we have made strides. There have been big inroads. I mean, just imagine even 10 years ago, the notion of letting people use their pronouns. Like, think mm-hmm. about how, how much an idea like that has, has sort of permeated into our culture now so that, so that most of us are cool with that. My oldest is, is gender fluid. And, Mine uh, too. Yep, and identifies as they, them. And it, it was difficult for me at first to kind of get used to, but... Mm-hmm. You know, I got it and and our families are getting it and all this. But like, it's crazy that to think that, yeah, middle America is kind of getting that, too. And and, you know, sort of notions of like white supremacy. Like if you told 
someone maybe even 10 years ago, yeah, you're probably a white supremacist. They'd be like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> no, I am not. But it's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I've, I'm upholding the, you know, the sort of uh, the strictures of white supremacy. I guess I am a white supremacist. And it's, it's hard to get that to people, but it is making inroads and people are realizing that. And that's a big deal. I mean, that's a huge damn deal. It, it's the whole thing I was speaking to is that I don't go to Klan rallies. I don't mm. do everything in my power to to hold down people who are different from me. Sure. But to say that I have not been complicit in part of the internal structure that has existed forever and allowed things to persist would also be a lie. Yeah, and we so all have. Yeah. It, it's a daily learning experience, and it requires constant self-evaluation, real critical thinking. And I think that's another area where a lot of these things break down. Critical thinking means you can't... You can't get defensive. You can't allow emotions to get in the way. Allow emotion to inform you and propel you for things that are important. But, you know, if someone, that was the hardest part for me. On the couple times that I've stepped in and been criticized, I'm like, no, I'm a good person. Yeah, Fuck it, you. You don't know me. You know, same for me. I mean, gut reaction. Yeah, it is. And it, yeah, I, I mean, everybody sort of experiences that. And if you're, I mean, even if you're if you're African-American, the first time, you know, somebody that's like Native American says, hey, please don't use spirit animal or whatever. Right. They tend to get, you know, pissed, too, and say, you know, fuck, I'm black. Like, don't tell me this. Right. Right. And it's it's, you know, every group has their own particular sort of thing and, and particular way that they're upholding the, the sort of structure of internal of, of institutional racism. And, you know. We just got to keep striking at it with big sticks and uh, eventually smash the shit out of it. And I think that'd be awesome, right? Well, and it, it, I mean, again, <laughs> as, as long as long as the incremental steps, and I know they're always going to be incremental no matter how hopeful we are, yeah. as long as they continue moving in the right direction. That's right. And again, the right direction, that even sounds suspect to me, like, well, the way that I think they should be moving. <laughs> but as long as we start moving towards a humanistic viewpoint, even if it's baby steps, as long as we're not backsliding like you're talking about in the UK yep. right now, at least there's some hope, right? Yep. And as long as we always listen to voices of, of color and, and people of, of, you know, different orientations and stuff and listen to where they're leading us, we'll be fine. You and, know, until, to... and until people of color and transgender people and everybody else, when they, until they actually believe that they have the possibility to fulfill out their dreams of their lives... Mm-hmm. Without that, we are not okay. Yeah, we're not. And done. so that's the thing. It's like, okay, so it did take me some time to get used to pronouns and that sort of thing. <laughs> I was a little irritated by it, and I also felt like a failure because I kept screwing it up with a friend of mine. It's hard. But guess what? It's not quite as hard as probably being that person no, who feels, that's the <laughs> who feels yeah. like a plural. That's what a friend of mine said. Like, yeah. I feel like a plural. I feel like a, a they, them. I'm like, well, I guess I should not complain about my stupid accidentally calling you her you know (laughs) but but there really is a thing about until you believe that you have the liberty to do what is possible for other people who take it for granted and until we get to that point until that shift happens we're in trouble and in danger of of upholding our democracy when you talk about taking uh over the meaning of a word. When you talk about repossessing the value of a word like liberty, I also feel that way about patriot. Like most people who call themselves patriots are not people you'd Uh want to hang with. But I do consider myself an American patriot because I believe that if there is a foundation to this republic, and I believe there is, I think the Constitution was written surprisingly well for a document that's almost 250 years old. Written by men. Well, again, and old white slaveholding men. I understand all that. But the notion of it, if we decide that we want to find the real essence of it and get there and, and find a way to make it a place where everybody has a chance, everybody can at least 
Just be themselves. Yeah. Which doesn't sound like it's that hard of work, but apparently it's almost impossible work. To me, that's why I remain a patriot, is that I do believe in the promise that one day there is that possibility for everybody. Will there still be poor people? Absolutely. Will there still be marginalized people? Of course there will be. But if it's not based on what you look like, who you sleep with, how you identify, that kind of thing, then I think that we've made a huge step forward. It's it's essentially utopianism. I mean, they wrote that constitution basically to try to build a utopia. And until we actually reach the utopia, which in my mind basically looks like Star Trek world, probably. I'm down. Right? Yeah. I mean, once once we're there, I think, I mean, and that's and that's certainly a possibility. I mean, we have to as a species to to not, you know, sort of die out in the cosmos, right? If the Enterprise showed up in orbit tomorrow, and I mean this with 100% seriousness, mm-hmm. and they said, you've got 20 minutes to get your shit together. We can replicate <laughs> anything you need, but you're never coming back to Earth ever again. Mm-hmm. Do you go explore the stars, or do you stay here? Oh, I fucking go explore the stars. I'm coming with you. You better yeah. fucking call me, John. <laughs> I because will. You know I, totally I, will. I love friends here, and I love what I do here, but oh, man. I mean, what? we want to go to the Gamma Quadrant? Let's go. Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> My only problem with it all is that there weren't any fat people on Star Trek, right? Well, that's because they ate right. There well, wasn't. You noticed there wasn't a I McDonald's they, in I the food court. I think they killed all the fat people no, before they left. No, yes, they, they did. did. <laughs> did you ever see Wally? It was only fat people. <laughs> was it really? Oh, yeah. I never and saw that. You're I, not thinking about Chief O'Brien on, on Deep Space Nine. He wasn't oh, a skinny guy, see, was he? Okay. And he started out on Star TNG. Trek. Yeah, You said did. Star Trek where I was convinced they killed all the fat people. Before no, they no, 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 no. They, they, they just used fat. Awesome. The, the fat people that showed up on Star Trek usually were re- represented evil. <laughs> that's yeah. true. That's, that's true. That's fine. So they're, they're fattest. In Look, the future, man, they're the original fattest. Star Trek first interracial kiss. It, yeah. it, now it may seem quaint by today's standards. Genuinely seismic and revolutionary. So the combination of living our lives better on the day to day, but also these seismic acts of importance that genuinely change things. And I think we're still seeing plenty of those. So fingers crossed it keeps moving forward. John, we've got to wrap up. The one thing I hate that we didn't get to because I could talk about this stuff all day because I feel like a, a child sometimes. I feel like I have so much to learn and perspective is crucial. But one of the cool things that we talked about when I introduced you, you design album covers for Sundays. I do. Sundays is a, an record label that has specialized in re-releases and compilations for decades now. How did you get hooked up with them? I uh, actually designed a bunch of fake album covers uh, to try to just get my work out there. Um, I've always done kind of just boring web design, but I designed a bunch of fake album covers and I threw them out on the internet and uh, and they saw them and, and really liked them and wanted to use one of them for a Velvet Underground uh, set that they were doing. And then I just kind of developed a relationship with those guys and and now, I mean, and the, and the one really great thing about Sundays is that they're definitely putting in the work. They are throwing out records by um, women. Um, that's a huge thing that we've been doing a lot of recently. And, and we did a couple, actually, Susie Quattro-related mm. releases of two of her early bands, The Pleasure Seekers and Cradle. Yep. And we've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And then also, um, you know, black artists and some early uh, gay albums and such that we've been putting out. And it, it, it you know, I, I really believe in what they do. I mean, they're such an amazing label. Well, they're an amazing label in the sense, too, that they also dig into things. I think the first compilation I ever bought from them was a bunch of old surf and hot rod stuff. Mm-hmm. And I literally hadn't heard of a single band on there. Now, <laughs> not that I'm the living human musical encyclopedia, but I pay attention. And I've listened to a lot of music. Yeah. And I saw this compilation, like, I've never heard of one of these. Seven bucks, I'm in. And it was cool as hell. And it, it reminds you that there 
there's always more to be learned. That's the other great thing about working at that record store. I don't ever pretend to be the cool guy who I'm like, oh, I know about this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I heard about them. Oh, yeah. If I learn something new, that's a banner day, man. That, that means your your world totally. is now richer than it was the day before. That's totally true. Yep. Couldn't agree more. John, we have to wrap it up, man. This has been super cool. You will come back again another time, won't I you? I will, yeah. Thanks for having me. I thank really you, appreciate John. It. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Great to have you by. Thanks again to Smart Start MN. Thanks to our friends at AudioQuip, without whom, well, we'd be writing most of this down on pencil and paper and then just handing it out as a fanzine because without this audio equipment we can't do this show thank god <laughs> thank god we're not doing although we could get people horror. like john to do the graphics on the fanzine maybe it's time to bring hey, back the fanzine here we go and <laughs> be no let's stick with this thanks to audio equip <laughs> and thanks to all of our patreon members we got a couple of new ones this week and we really couldn't do it without you it allows us to have our own dedicated smart start mn studio and to continue to do the work that we do here and i promise patreon members this is a genuine promise when we can do our special events again we're going to no less than once every two months hopefully once a month depending on availability of potential guests and Mm -hmm. locations to do it we are going to have exclusive live music events for our patreon members so if you've never been a member of patreon you can check it out patreon.com slash brian oak show all one word that's o-a-k-e brian oak show and for those of you who have been so patient and stuck with us through this stupid filled year we are going to make it up to i promise plus we still got those tote bags with your name on lots of totes okay your name's not technically on them but we've got one waiting for you the next time we see you that's going to do it for the show sean you take care you too brian thanks sean being weird today (gasps) you work for the irs as well don't you (laughs) well maybe that's why i'm here oh my god (laughs) john you picked out one more song for us to hear and this is an artist whose name I have heard for decades and decades and decades, and like so many important singer-songwriters, she was much better known for other people sort of promoting her and doing her songs than she ever became a star in her own right. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and and she's sort of one of those kind of artists that's known as how they influenced male artists, you know what I mean, where they'll, they'll take her and say, oh, yeah. You know, Todd Rundgren was hugely influenced by her. And it's like, well, can we just listen to her? And but Todd Rundgren got significantly more credit significantly than she'll ever get. More. Yeah, and it's a bummer. Uh, it's, um, she's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And I've always, here's the other thing I've always screwed up. Even though I asked you earlier, I've already mm. forgotten. Her name is spelled N-Y-R-O. It's like the emperor who fiddled when Rome burned. It's so Nero. It's Laura Nero. And I'll probably forget that within about 15 minutes and may ask you again <laughs> outside of the studio. It's Laura Nero to wrap up the show with Wedding Bell Blues. John, thanks again. Thank you.